HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is actually the last show of this summer 2018 season. Going to take a little vacay and be back this fall, just so you know. You know, not leaving Heritage, just taking a you know slight sabbatical. Um, but today, I'm very excited to kind of bookend this season uh, and this year with two outstanding women. Because on today's episode, the MP Shift is a concept design and branding studio working primarily on hospitality and lifestyle brands. Co-founders Amy Morris and Anna Polanski have over 25 years combined working in this multifaceted creative space. And in 2018, won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant Design. Their backgrounds and influences are as diverse as their Instagram mood boards, pulling inspiration from wine bottles, embroidery, chocolate packaging, album covers, and worldwide travel. But their core concept is rooted in their need to create a place for all to exist every day, all day. So welcome, Amy and Anna. Um, I kind of wanted to start with your own aesthetic and what kind of space you grew up in. Um, first, tell me where you grew up, and since we're going to talk about restaurant design eventually, what your kitchen, what your home kitchens look like. Growing up or now? Oh, yes. Oh, growing growing up. up. Well, so I grew up in Paris, um, and food was always a, a big thing in my family. My dad's an amazing cook, so we always had open kitchens. They would always create their own kitchens and make sure they were open and Lots of food visible, so there's definitely this idea of generosity, and, and it was not a 
hyper hygienist sterile kitchen for sure. Yeah, were there certain little design elements, facets, uh, colors, or you know, architecture in there that you remember that that really resonates today? Yeah, actually, they always had the. It was very classic French, and then since it was always yellow walls and terracotta floor tiles. You know, a lot of the kitchens we had growing up. And Amy. Yeah, open kitchen as well. I remember we, my mom opened the kitchen up so it could be more part of the living room. Um, and again, a lot of generous food. My mom loves to cook. I mean, she's the ultimate Jewish mom. It's just always cooking. We always sat down together as a family uh, to eat, which was nice. I just see that so rare these days. True. Uh, where in the world did you grow up? I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. You know, two distinctly different places, yeah. Paris. Though I call Boston the Paris of the U.S. Yeah, all the time. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's very quaint. It has a lot of charm. Yeah, but true. again, this concept of open kitchen that both of you kind of have uh, yeah. tapped into um, and communal eating certainly has made its way into your design aesthetic and thought processes today. And and I wonder, you know, through the process of everything that you've done work-wise, uh, has that communal sense always been at the core, at the mantra of, you know, how you work and who you work with? I mean, community, I think everyone wants to create a place that you see as your own community. Uh, so you want your restaurant ultimately to do, you want it to do really well, but ultimately you want it to be that local that everyone is coming to all hours of the, of the day. Walking in here to Roberta's at 3 p.m., we were just commenting on, on, a, an Tuesday. A, on a Tuesday <laughs> and every table is packed. That's the dream. Yeah. Hey, did you have those locals growing up? I mean... Well, we've had many versions of that. Yeah, I mean, one thing we would always do, which was common in the Jewish tradition on Sundays, you go to the Chinese food restaurant, you know, so you always see everyone there. That was kind of funny um, thing growing up. Um, and then we, we, we grew up in a very small town, so you always had the restaurant at the heart of the town, whether it was a diner or just something very easy. But you know you'd run into your neighbors or friends. And I feel like Parisian eating culture has a very different sense of, you know, what a local is. Uh, what did that mean to you and your family growing up? Yeah, Jews don't do the Chinese thing in France. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's an American Jew thing. Yeah, it is. Which I wish we had. It's really cool. But, um, yeah, I mean, for us, you know, it was a mix of um, family meals at home, some traditions that you have as well. Every Sunday we would have uh, uh, lamb, for instance, with beans. You know, there were a few food traditions. And otherwise, as far as restaurants, I feel like we would go to brasseries a lot with my parents and share platters of seafood and, you know, steak and very simple food that everyone can like in the family. But back to your communal, um, the communal table thing, it's definitely something we always try to incorporate in our designs because we always say a restaurant should feel more like your house than a set design. And a communal table really helps to give that feel. And, and we always hope our designs will help people meet and connect as well. It's not just a place where you check in, check out, and, and just meet no one. I think we first connected when you were working with Le Fooding. And can you explain what that was? Because it really did promote those values as well. Yeah, Le Fooding is a, a big restaurant media in France. Um, and they do uh, consulting and events around the world. But they were the first guy to challenge the Michelin definition of what good food was. So, you know, they were saying it's not just um, caviar and white tablecloths. Or on the other end, backpack, cheap eats. There is a world between those categories, and let's talk about this. And so they invented words to talk about the wine bars and the bistros and the trucks and 
Um, same with food events. They thought traditional food and wine tastings were very elitist and very expensive and, and kind of boring. And instead of that, food events should be more of a food party celebrating friends and food and chefs. And Yeah, I feel like the descriptions that were in Love Fooding uh, were so atmospheric. Like you understood what space you would enter before ever getting there. Um, and it wasn't those same old stodgy white tablecloths, you know, um, waiters with a certain uniform on. Um, and I know, Amy, you've worked in marketing and media strategy for a lot of companies, mm -hmm. but there are two in specific I kind of want to tap oh, into, sure. yeah. and that's Domino Magazine um, and Roman and Williams, yeah. because they are so about that aesthetic. Yeah, Domino Magazine was great because talking about community, they were the first magazine to create that design community, and it took off like wildfire. They also democratized design, so they peeled it back and started to show you someone's home and how they put that look together and where they got those sources from. So all of a sudden, you're looking at this magazine that used to feel unattainable, and they were actually handing over their sources. So people were running out and buying everything in the image and creating their home and then realizing, wow, I can create a space that feels you know, as good as this person that I'm seeing in the magazine. And I think it really started a whole generation of blogs and um, people with with more interest in design and, and expressing themselves in their own homes. I, your home is such a haven to come home to and express yourself. You, you really want to give it your own personal style instead of just picking up what you get at Restoration Hardware stores yeah. on, the, on the floor there. Well, I love that you use the word uh, democratize because yeah. so much was so aspirational and that was almost equated to... Um, an amount of money that you'd have to spend. Exactly. And, and democratizing all these sources as well as, you know, making design, um, I, I don't want to use the word cheaper, but more accessible. Well, the high-low became really popular yeah. at that time. They were showing you, okay, you can go to Ikea and get frames, but you could, and you can get a print of a big designer, but maybe your duvet cover is a really nice fabric from a, a designer that you love. But maybe your pillowcases are just white and simple from Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, or your plant, maybe you buy Ikea plant holders, but you do some DIY and paint them so they're a little unique. So bringing in the DIY and the high-low just allowed people to express themselves so much more. So what were your first New York kitchens like? What did they look like? What kind of design elements were in there, if there were any? I mean, my kitchen was too small to even design. It was a disaster. Me and my husband would try to cook, and I, at one point I hit the knife off the bench, and he was in the emergency room. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it's hard in New York with your first kitchen. It's usually not much of one. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the first time last year that we were able to actually design our kitchen and, and the place we have. And uh, a big thing for us was to have open shelving. We hate how the, the prefab kitchen in New York apartments where it was like, fake moldings and you just stuff stuff in there that you forget and you end up just never cooking so that was a big thing for us open shelving have the tools out have the spices out it just really inspires you as you as you go i've always I felt like that was a little bit of the difference between um you know owning a restaurant and renting an apartment too because you don't necessarily want to invest in a space if it's not yours to yeah. make it yours yeah i mean a good tip for people who are 
designing their first kitchen, IKEA has a 15-year warranty. So if your cabinets are destroyed after 15 years, they will fully refund you, which I find amazing because they just did this for me, and now I'm thinking of the new fronts to put on. And there are so many companies out there. Again, this is from Domino and Remodelista making these sources available, but there's all kinds of companies that will design new fronts for your cabinets. It's so many beautiful designs it's really hard to choose from yeah and well for those of us that feel like that's a daunting task to redesign a space or design the space uh, from the onset you break it down uh, and start with concept and explain to me what concept is and that ideation process I think it's often misunderstood when we talk about concept, people think unauthentic immediately. But for us, concept is just how you articulate your vision. So whether it's your house or a restaurant, you always want to start by asking yourself, why am I doing this? What's the goal? What type of feel do I want to have? What am I celebrating? And so on and so forth. And from there, you start putting words. And then that helps putting together a mood boards and a more visual translation of it. Answer those questions exactly for me about the kitchen you have now. Yeah, I mean, we live in Rockaway Beach, so we definitely were not going to create a French Art Deco kitchen there. We wanted to just embrace what was there. It was a very simple bungalow-style house, so simple materials. We kept the, the walls very bright and white and light ivory. Um, the house had a terrible wood floor that would just send it back, and it became this amazing wood floor. So we... We kept it very simple, just like Rockaway is. Um, and then we created shelving, like I said, that was open, but also kind of imperfect, very rounded. It almost feels like a Venice beach, you know, beach uh, bungalow. Um, another thing is my husband does ceramics, as you know, so we wanted to make sure we could expose the ceramics. So I think everyone needs to kind of ask themselves that question, what's the vibe, what type of environment are you in, what functionality do you need? And, Well, it should be reflective of somebody, of a person, of a place. And how often do you see restaurants that aren't that, you know, that that don't show themselves well enough where they are? Too often. (laughs) Not only do they not reflect themselves well, but there's many contradictions, so you can't even figure out what they're trying to reflect. And then you get look at the menu, and that's even more confusing. So you leave there without any impression, and so then you don't go back. You go back to the places you have a connection with. I mean, I'm assuming that's the next step, which is visual identity. And it, it's kind of like that thing where, where you name a band in high school before you even have the band. But it's so important to have those things, a logo, uh, you know, packaging, yeah. um, things that people take away that, you know, resemble that place. Um, I'm not talking about your places, but what are some of the worst examples you've ever seen of that? Uh, of of restaurants, of franchises that, you know, have a specific name that doesn't have anything to do with what they do. Or feel that doesn't. I mean, I don't, we don't want to name places, but there was a place we were at in Houston uh, about a year or so ago. And we walked in and it looked kind of country kitchen. And then you walked further in and it felt barbecue-esque. And then we sat down and looked at the menu, and it was very elevated. And then the ele- and then we were at the bar, so the chef came over, and that conversation was very impressive about the wines and the combinations. And we were very confused because we thought maybe we were going to get burgers there. <laughs> so already we're confused about what kind of food's coming out. And then somehow we got to see the private dining room, which was a whole nother look. 
And then the food came out and it was delicious and elevated. So it just didn't match the space. And we left there and I, I probably couldn't even tell you the name of the place. Cause I mean, I can't even visualize a name right now. Yeah. Because of all I mean, where concepts. are you going to go with that? I mean, it's burger, country kitchen, elevated food, you know, tasting menu. I mean, it was all over the place. And it's unfortunate because the food was really good. Yeah. Great chef. So, so what are certain restaurant names that just nail it? And you have that visual in your head before ever entering that space. Hmm. I feel like the name takes on the space. I mean, a good story is Demaria. Uh, we were trying to think of the name for that with the, the creative director and the owner. And we went through many names. We couldn't settle on a name. And at one point they said to us, we're, it's going to be called Demaria. And we, at first, thought we were a little confused by that name. We thought well, it just feels a little too Mexican. It, I don't know. It feels like a casual place. I'm going to get a taco. But then as the place evolved and the name was Demaria, it, it really took on the personality of the space and it worked. Have you ever seen a space change the name of a restaurant? Has the personality overtaken, you know, that marquee? And like the nickname took over? Yeah. Kind of <laughs> uh, I can't think of any. But another good okay. story we always use is um, Otway used to be called Tilda, but before it was called Tilda, they were going to call it St. James just because it's on St. James Place, which is not crazy. As we get closer to the opening, one of their answers to the brand Q&A was we really want to make sure no one thinks it's a religious place. Mm. So we thought, okay, you might want to change it. And I just think sometimes it's hard. That, that's where we come in. It's sometimes as the owner, it's hard to take a step back and think critically. And they, you know, for them, it, it was going to be called St. James. That made total sense. And we're here to say, okay, well, let's look at your goals and your fears and let's make sure the names or the, the branding, you know. Well, they always sense. need someone else that's kind of like naming a child to be like, oh, I met a terrible Alicia once or like I know a Debbie who's just no you don't want to name your child Debbie and it, it's fearful because this is your baby that your exactly. restaurant is your child and you want to make sure everyone adores it as much as you do but the one thing we know I mean we, we do naming sometimes for clients we we feel like it really makes sense if it's a bigger brand or a new product you're launching but we feel like for independent restaurants it's often often the clients just end up using names they found because it's such a personal thing you know we really encourage them to do the brainstorm and, and yeah. be confident in their ideas well we're going to take a quick break and come back and find out why you even call yourself the MP shift you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org cheers Great. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow, praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com.
Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Amy and Anna of the MP Shift. And excuse us as we pizza throughout because we're starving today. And it is so the last good. show of the season, so we have to celebrate a little celebrate. bit. Always. But the MP Shift, what is behind that name? Well, it's quite, we get asked this all the time, but it's quite straightforward. M is for Morris, P is for Polonsky, and shift as in shift perception, but also shift as in a shift you work in the hospitality industry. So you're working the late shift or the morning shift. Or... And the design, the, the, the typography of MP shift, what, what does that mean to you? That was a hard process. Branding your own self <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is the hardest thing. Um, but first of all, I mean, another thing with Shift is we didn't want to have any hipster um, connotation with like collective or even studio sometimes. You know, it's just all these kids out there use those names. So we wanted to have something different. And same in the logo, I think it was really important for us that it's not affiliated to one era in particular or one style. Um, so when we started, the big trend was um, black and white logos in a rectangle box. It's like all the cool brands had that, so we really want to be different. And we looked at eras that were a bit more timeless, like the Bauhaus era or, you know, Mondrian types of painting, things that could work now and could work back then. And that really influenced the, the typography. It's quite, I mean, the co- primary color is obviously... Uh, we're inspired by Mondrian, but we're also just this idea of something timeless that works universally. Um, and the font is uh, is very clean and, and timeless, but there is a bit of an imperfection with those um, uh, gaps in the letters. I mean, I feel like that flows directly into interior design too, because all those elements or those all those descriptioners are very similar what you're going for inside a restaurant. So the logo or you know the typography uh, begets you know the interior design um, and I love that you referenced Bauhaus and Mondrian because there is such art history behind everything that you do and one of my favorite things to do is just scroll through your Instagram because it is a, it's, it's a mood board and it's one of the best I've seen because it's taking uh, influence from influences from outside of the restaurant industry. The team would love to to hear that they would spend a lot of time working on the Instagram. Yeah, some of the ones that I've loved uh, recently was chocolate packaging, um, <laughs> negative space, album covers. Yeah. But you know, these are things that work within a box. You know, that that chocolate wrapper is the shape of a chocolate, and then album cover is usually that that square rhombus rectangle. Um, do you feel like when you're designing restaurants, you're working within a box or you're able to explode that idea of what a restaurant is? Well, we, do, we always start with the floor plan. So speaking of the actual physical space um, and within that floor plan, though, we don't look at it as every other architect would look at it. I think and also a lot of GMs constantly think I need as many two tops in this room. We try to think how we can bring the person into the space, space much what the same way they visit their own home. So you want to have different places, a place where you like to read or a place where you like to eat. So back to your communal table, we like to have a communal table where people can gather, but we also like to have a place where people can go to the bar and have a quick bite and not feel like they've taken a whole table. We like to have an area that can be privatized so that the restaurant can stay open while having events. So it always starts with the floor plan and creating a flow that's really inviting. And then we go from there as far as, 
you were talking about concept, it always starts with the concept. But from that concept, we create two creative directions. Where do we want to go? Where, what do we want people to feel when they come into the space? And how does it relate to the food? There's this great reference by an urban sociologist, Ray Oldenburg, um, where in 1989, he called those types of restaurants or spaces the great good place. Or it was in the great good place that he defined those as third places. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, you know, local where you can stop and feel like it's home without mm-hmm. having been home yet. Uh, and you've done something where you've translated that idea into not just, you know, dinner restaurants, but all-day cafes, uh, a place so comfortable that it feels like you've never really left home, or it is your second home. Uh, how the heck do you do that? That's such a compliment. <laughs> I think I think a big part of how we're able to do that is, first of all, our process is paramount. I mean, we, we always go back to understand the client's vision, and then how do we communicate that into the space? It's so important. If a space feels authentically like the owner's, you're already going to feel more comfortable and excited about the space. Um, But another thing that Anna mentioned is that we always have a touch of imperfection because you don't want to feel like you stepped onto a set. I mean, look at us here right now. I mean, just looking at the roof and the walls, like there's not one perfect line or space in Roberta's. No, and it's falling down. It's it's literally breaking (laughs) apart. But people love that about it, you know? (laughs) It feels like you found your own backyard pizzeria, you know? It doesn't feel like a chain and... It's inviting because of the imperfection. Well, then, of your clients, I've been looking at Mimi Cheng's lately, which is a contemporary dumpling shop. Um, How do you steer clear of the tropes of things like Chinese food, dumpling, uh, Chinatown? Well, again, the process is really always starting with the Q&A. Something we always say is we don't want to have a signature style. Everything we do is about the client's vision, and we do have a touch, but hopefully you'll see that every client ends up with a different project. So Mimi Cheng's branding is very different from a bakery in Paris or a shawarma in Williamsburg. In their case, they embody this duality between... Chinese culture, but also downtown New York, you know, hip culture. So it was really important for them to translate that. And they are paying a homage to their mom's roots, but they also are resolutely New Yorkers and they're not trying to be cliche Chinese or fake folklore. Um, So we just played with those influences. We looked at uh, crates in Chinatown and all those really um, interesting packages that you would see in the streets, but also we mix that with um, other references. You know, they love outdoor voices for for sportswear, and they love sweet green for salads. We looked at all those brands that have this different touch and mix that, and that's how we create the yeah. results. One, one of my favorite clients of yours um, visually is Echo, um, yeah. which is in Paris, but... Uh, you know, Echo comes from the neighborhood in L.A., Echo Park, where exactly. the two chefs uh, came from. And, I mean, I don't know whether or not I would know uh, that approaching the restaurant. I mean, it certainly has those identities, those primary colors, exactly. that right. pop of the 80s. Um, it's so amazing how you've been able to transplant California into Parisian cafe culture. I mean, what was that process like? Because I feel like that is truly exploding the box of what... Uh, most of those types of restaurants were in Paris. Yeah, I mean, we just, I think, uh, we did a lot of unexpected strategy for Paris. But first of all, branding-wise, a lot of restaurants don't don't even know what branding is in Paris. And if they do, 
there is a bit of a condescension with it. They think it's unauthentic, or so by having a branding strategy, it was already a big, uh, a big step forward in Paris. And making sure the branding was authentic, talking about LA and the '80s and this bold culture, making sure the messaging was right. We worked a lot with the owner to talk about it because. He thought the press was going to dismiss this as another healthy cafe, but not at all. I mean, that LA food culture is really something specific. It's not just another juice bar or microbiotic place. There is a set of Mexican influences and Korean influences. So we really made sure the messaging was right, the Instagram was right. Um, and I think just thinking about programming in general, doing collaborations with the right chefs and You know, when we when he opened, we thought he should go to his neighbors, the offices, the restaurants, and offer cookies, which no one in Paris would ever do that. But we thought, you know, this is the American warmth and generosity, and that's what you're trying to to show. So yeah, and it it felt well. The colors that you use for Echo are, are like these bright, vivid, powerful Crayola colors, mm -hmm. and I think you've referenced that on your site too. It is, mm -hmm. it's Crayola, so it feels like this this childhood playground, and it. You know, even though it's it's of a you know quality that's far more than any child could cook and do, um, you feel like a kid in that kind of space. Well, I think you're getting the sense of what the owner's trying to put out there. I mean, it's very personal to him. He went to L.A. a lot. He had wanted to do this for a long time. He really understood the L.A. food scene. Uh, and he went after a chef that he thought would be perfect for this. He also, it was kind of a childhood dream to have his own place, uh, a cafe that was, was his own and the foods that he loved. So it was great working with Mateus because he had a real point of view. And so we could take his vision and really help him translate that. And he was really a big part of the process. I have not seen La Petite Grain yet, um, but Le Grand Bon is one of my favorite restaurants oh, in Paris. Okay. And... Uh, their chef is crazy and lovely. <laughs> But how do you change what a Parisian, um, you know, boulangerie is? Because what is that font? What is that typeface that you see on all awnings of, you know, where you pick up your daily baguette? Oh, look at that's a hard question. Yeah, yeah. it's like a fin de sil. But I mean, it probably has a. Um, Yeah, little flourishes yeah. on the end of all the letters because, and not so clean. Um, so you're saying, tourist, and we disrupted that with looking. Yeah, because as a tourist, I know to look for, even if I don't know the word, for that kind of type. And obviously bread in the window to approach, but this is very, very different. Well, I mean, first of all, he's English, but, you know, we've been working in Paris for a long time. Um, and when he came to us, he saw that we use color a lot and said, that's not an approach I want to take. I want to be monochromatic. And again, a great partner. I mean, he really has a vision for his, his company from Le Grand Bain to Le Petit Grain to future plans. Um, and he's, he started out with an alchemy symbol for a Le Grand Bain and wanted to bring that over to Le Petit Grain, but wanted to find other elements that could come through and not over, one overpower the other. Um, so again, it, it was a great partner, but again, it was the process. So going back and saying, okay, here's your vision. Now we're going to create creative directions to match that vision. And we're going to create color palettes that match what you've asked, which is more monochromatic. How often do you have a client bring you a symbol? Uh, another example is zebra in Paris. They already had that astrological theme. Yeah, it's quite rare, and it, I would say those are exceptions. We don't love working that way because we can't apply our process from A to Z. 
Uh, but, you know, every constraint is also a fun challenge for us. And I think Zebra is a great example. They worked with this artist called Supa Kitsch, who does those really beautiful ornamented um, patterns. Um, and that was beautiful, but really hard to play with because it has such a personality. And, and it was fun for our team to just extract part of a pattern from the logo and blow it out and play with colors and also play with printing. We're really interested in, in papers and different uh, printing techniques. Um, so it ended up being fun. Another thing I would add on the bakery fonts is we always say our strength is that we don't have a traditional design background. And so when we designed a bakery in Paris, we never thought, oh, what's typically the font they use? We just, you know, from scratch decided we were going to do this based on um, the owner's vision. So I think sometimes it's, it's really helpful and it, it makes us more creative to not be, to not have too much knowledge on everything. Well, knowing Gerardo Gonzalez of Lalo, now Lalito, he certainly has a vision. Um, and then speaking about paper, it's so influenced by Almodovar posters, movie posters. Um, what, what, what did he bring to the table? Because it seems so clear and concisely him. Um, it, it's like an explosion of his imagination in this way I haven't seen many restaurants in New York. That, so we collaborated with him and his partners on the branding only, and that was definitely one of those very collaborative uh, processes. Gerardo, that was his first proper restaurant. He's been a chef in a lot of restaurants, but that was his first place, so he had a strong vision. Um, and I think it's a great example of how we just helped him take it to the next level. He, he and his partner, Ben, uh, came up with the um, logo type, actually. But from there, we helped them with a different set of colors. And Almodovar was a big reference for Gerardo. So we try to, you know, offer different funky layouts. And it's fun for us, you know, even if it's someone's vision and if someone participated to the, to the typography, it's really fun to collaborate. I don't know if you ever went to Winnie's or remember Winnie's, yeah. but that is a big part of my childhood. Um, so fun. Are you going to sing a tune for us? Oh, now? God. No, I never. I, I would didn't want to put myself on stage because I would drink underage there. Um, but I'd go to Chinatown, go to Winnie's, you know, have a couple beers. And it was such a special place that when I heard Lala was opening up there, I'm like, never not going in, you know, because Winnie's was again, so ingrained in my life. But usually you see a space come in and, you know, you see aspects of whatever the space was before. Um, what did you keep of Winnie's to make it still Chinatown, still local, still homey? We didn't do the interiors on Lalito, just just the branding. But I think we kept that whims in the branding. We kept that uh, whimsicality that we had in the karaoke, and it's something Corrado loved about the space. The space was already very much him. Something kind of fun and irreverent, where people would go get drunks and have fun, and yeah, and also, he had a real spiritual element he wanted to bring into it. So he, you see that in the space and in, <coughs> sorry, and in the branding. He brings a lot of fun. I think uh, there's like a starry bathroom and there's the change of colors and you, he has Nian inside the kitchen so you're not quite sure what's happening with the color in the kitchen because it's this he hidden neon. Um, throughout the space he brings that spiritual element and you see that in the branding with the eyes and um, just the way he play, you know, plays with the design as it evolves. Well then talk to me about Danny of Golda. Um, because what didn't you do for that space, first of all? That was kind of a ground up, right? 
This one was interiors. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, just a note on this is we started this company because we felt that there was a need for a more 360 agency. But it's very recent that people trust us for this. For, for our first two or three years, everyone thought they should only pick us for one thing. Mm-hmm. So either interiors or branding or marketing strategy. Um, and I think now we have at least three to four projects in progress where we'll actually get to do both. So that's going to be really fun for us. In the case of Golda, we did the interiors, but we had worked with Danny already at uh, Tilda, now Otway. So we already knew who he was and we had a great, uh, a great collaboration going on. Um, and, you know, he told us he wanted to do something a little similar to Tilda, an all-day cafe with lots of fresh and chef-driven foods, but with a bit more of a Middle Eastern twist. Uh, Golda is the name of his grandmother, so there was definitely this uh, family roots coming out. And so we thought, okay, let's create a, a space that's bright and inviting, like an all-day cafe should be, but let's make it specific to Danny. So he loved the blue and, and orange, he wasn't sure, but he wanted some warm colors, so you know, we created that palette. Um, leaving the kitchen really op- open like you would have in the grandmother's living room. Um, the nod to the Middle East comes from those little one-inch tiles that you have in the facade and the, on the counter. So really subtle hint to Turkey in all those areas where they use tiles. Um, and that's how it became Golda. Where, where do you keep all this stuff, all the tiles? All the, do you have a <laughs> large storage space or is it custom per restaurant? Well, it's ordered per restaurant. But as far as the ideas from around the world, those are cataloged in our brain and we just pull them out from time to time when we need to. Yeah. Let's talk about this 360 approach because it is something you certainly want to focus more on, the totality of mm-hmm. you know, concept design, etc. Um, and I want to reference one person. I think it was on your Instagram. Uh, it's Alvin Lustig. Um, because this, this, this week's yeah. theme. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because, because I know him uh, Funny enough, for his furniture, not for his typography and book design, because I've, I've sat in a Lustig chair before. Um, I, I believe he worked with or studied under Frank Lloyd Wright, so he's mm-hmm. an architectural background. Mm-hmm. Having gone through the processes of all these disparate parts, you obviously know how to put the whole together. Um, how do you tackle the whole project at once, or do you actually have to compartmentalize what you do? Well, we do, I mean, the first thing we do with a client is we have them answer a brain Q&A. That's the first step. And they do a visual, visual Q&A as well. That's, How long is this brain Q&A? It's about 10 questions. And we have each person on the team do it separately. And you gotcha. want to know some of the questions I see. Yeah. <laughs> Ask me some of the questions because I want to I wanna get this well, idea a, of... Let's see, say you're designing space. I mean, this is more high level question, but once your space opens, what is the dream headline you'd like to see on the cover of New York Magazine or New York Times? Well, I would hate to say finally, but hopefully (laughs) something that someone has been waiting uh, to open in New York for a while. Not that it took me forever to actually open. But that's a good question to ask because you'll answer it one way and your partner will answer another. And it kind of, it tells us that you're anxious to get it open and that this is a baby that you've been thinking about for a long idea, long time. So then we know you probably have a lot of ideas. It just it's psychologically very telling about how to approach you and the way you're thinking about things. But then sometimes the headline could be very you know direct and forward, the most colorful place to launch in New York. Then you know they want color. So it's just it's very telling that that one question. No, I'm partially colorblind, so probably not the latter. That's not you. That's not you. But uh, we always start with the brand with that we then we put a timeline together i mean 
we do not do everything at the same time but what's core is we keep going back to this is the process mm -hmm. by coming up with that concept two directions once we choose a direction everything comes back to that direction everything we pick out for the restaurant every color for the logo every secondary type um, the treatment does it go back to that creative direction that we've come up with and is it true to that or is it an idea that just came to you one day because you were walking down the street if it did let's put that aside for something else let's go back to the direction and make sure it all fits that direction well, what do you want the MP shift to be known for? Uh, di being disruptive, leading a new way, um, being able to work well with clients to bring their vision to to the space, not bringing our latest fantasy to the space, not creating sets. Um, we want to keep disrupting. A lot of people know us for all-day cafes, but we're about to do a mezcal bar in Paris. Um, or we're starting to talk to more hotels. I mean... Our design can go from minimalism to maximalism. We're capable of it all, and so we, we hope to show that full breadth. And I think we also want to be known for a no-bullshit um, branding agency because we just see so many decks of agencies client worked with, and you know they put together all those pie charts, and it's like lots of wording, but it, it's, we feel like it's not helpful to the client. Those are branding jargon that the clients never really use uh, in practice, so we really hope to be an agency that's a partner to the clients. And, I think that's how we disrupt the process a little bit is being confident enough to say we're not going to do all those charts and we're not going to have a 90 slide deck for your positioning but what we'll produce will be helpful to you I feel like you'd be much more apt to see a pie than a pie chart on your mood board <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, yes, and lots of pies yeah, and hoping that'd to be see more that inspiring yeah. well I mean I think to that point it's very interesting we've had someone come from an architectural school and join us and then we've recently had a mark, traditional marketing person join us and both of them did a great job in coming to us, but we realized the extra MP is like, okay, you do this great traditional job of how you've always done it, but now twist it a little bit to the right or the left and just bring a fresher perspective. So in marketing, you might digest all the materials and then summarize them. That's not enough for us. Now that you've summarized them, how do you say them in a very succinct, succinct way without any marketing jar jargon? And as far as architect texture yeah you can design a beautiful facade but how do we make it different and imperfect and that's when the architecture student says oh it can't be done that's like you can't have an imperfect facade well that's where we're always saying well yes it can be done we're always pushing the boundaries to make it a little bit different than what you're seeing and I think that is one of the biggest challenges with clients is they're always kind of looking at the latest trend and we're having to take them away from that and back to who they are as a brand and we can follow all this at the mpshift.com and certainly follow the Instagram for all the inspiration. Uh, thank you, ladies, for being on. And, thank you. you Thanks know, for having we'll, us. Hopefully we'll work together someday. Thanks for coming back from Maine yeah. to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here some Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Southern Farm and Garden, Music by Cookies, David Tattashore Engineering, and see you next season. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.